0: Welcome
1: to Behavior and Business by Runyon, a product design and venture studio based in Brooklyn, New York. We work with some of the world's leading companies and investors to design better digital products and ventures. We do that by crafting user experiences and business models that better support people's needs. In other words, we design for behavior and business. Welcome to Behavior in Business. Today, we're welcoming Scott Belsky, entrepreneur, investor, operating executive. Thank you so much for being with us today, Scott.
2: No, thanks for having me.
1: So there's quite a bit we wanted to cover with you today, everything from your early time as an entrepreneur, your role as an investor, and now at Adobe. And you know, certainly want to get into some of your writing and uh, your book, The Messy Middle. But maybe we can back all the way up. If you could just share... Kind of how your career got started, and a little bit more about your background.
2: Sure. Well, I think the theme has always been an obsession with design and organizing information. Even when I was, I started as a, as a science of earth systems major at Cornell as an undergraduate, and then found my way to environmental economics, and then to economics, and then undergraduate business, and then to the design and environmental analysis major. That I kind of graduated with most of my course load in both the design environmental analysis and the undergraduate business and so I was always kind of the overlap of of, of of those two and went to Wall Street to kind of cut my teeth on the business side as most people did in 2001-2002 time frame and in a traditional finance job for a year and a half but then joined this team within the firm focused on on organizational development and helping clients through their problems and that sort of thing it was sort of like a squad within the executive office focused on a hodgepodge of different things. And I found myself once again using Adobe Illustrator to help show something rather than tell something and it started getting stopped in more projects where I was using design. And I was always thinking, gosh, you've design is such an organizing force. It is such a competitive advantage in business that that people just don't realize. And it's amazing how we didn't even have really designers at Goldman at the time. And, and everything was always outsourced. And I also became like very passionate about the problem of why the creative world was so disorganized in the first place and why every company had a hard time finding and engaging designers and people would hire agencies, would hire other agencies, would hire headhunters, would hire freelancers. It just seemed like the most disorganized community on the planet. And so that was the impetus for Behance. Was the mission was to organize the creative world as a mission-centric medium agnostic play. So we would do it through any sort of medium we could. We made paper products. We had a task management tool. We had an annual conference that is now in its 11th year. We, we were somewhat frenetic in, in some ways looking at it from an investor's lens. And, uh, but, uh, but we ended up ultimately being focused on this core problem of organizing the creative world's work. And that's what Behance ended up becoming. And so fast forward, I mean, we were bootstrapped for five years, venture-backed for two years. Ultimately, we ended up being acquired by Adobe in late 2012. I joined the company, overseeing not only Behance, but also was given pretty quickly some responsibility for the creative cloud services side, which eventually included fonts and these things called CC libraries, which allowed everyone to kind of work together in in different products and applications with the same sort of Set of assets. And then had a, had, a, had a field day. It was so much fun to think about the future of creativity for mobile and, des- and connected creativity across desktop and tablet and all that kind of stuff. But when my three years at, at Adobe was up, and now it's been like 10 plus years in this journey of, of behance and, and, and tools for creative people, I started to be seduced by what everyone told me I should be doing, which is going and being a VC because over those years, starting in 2010, I'd started to advise and invest in a number of great entrepreneurs that were product and design minded people and asked me to help them on product and then ultimately would write their first check as a seed investment and then, and then sign up for a journey with them. And as some of these companies came to fruition, I just started to think maybe I should be an investor full time. Maybe that's my superpower. And, and so I, uh, so I left the, pro- the world of building products and building teams and working with designers and, and then found myself as a, uh, as a full-time VC and really frankly felt like I was underutilized from that moment forward. I felt like I hung my spurs a little too quickly. And while I love working with early stage teams and doing my own sort of seed thing, I did not love the notion of managing and scaling a firm and playing a different game altogether. And so. You know, through like a long, long process, I kind of came to grips and, and, and then transitioned to a venture partner role. And then, uh, and then said, okay, like, how do I get back to this mode of feeling fully utilized? Feeling every muscle is being strained every day across my desire to build teams, to build products, work with designers, to work with entrepreneurs, to be an active seed investor, but not full time. And, and that's kind of what led me to to come back as chief product officer at adobe that's somewhat what inspired coming the bringing together of a lot of experiences for the messy middle of the book Hmm. and stepping up my seed investing um, uh, uh, efforts as well
1: so you mentioned in that this idea of design as competitive advantage which is which is super compelling and and a theme that we very much encounter in our work and i'd love to get your thoughts on a phrase that you coined a few years ago this idea of the interface layer and I, i love for you to articulate that in your own words, but but our interest in the subject and, and something that you you wrote a post about later is, is something that is a constant inspiration for the work that we do. So when we think about designing products and ventures and doing that well, there's an there's an idea or a, or a theory that design is becoming an increased determinant of success in product outcomes and inventor outcomes. And there's, there's a few reasons that you get into in your post for why that is. And and I think we largely agree with, with a lot of that, but I'd love for you to kind of share that theory, the interface layer. And, and now that kind of time has passed since that, I'm just curious to see how you, how you think that theory has evolved and where you, where you see it showing up maybe in consistent ways and what you would expect it and perhaps differently.
2: Yeah. So I've always believed, and it's, you know, it's some controversial say in front of engineers, but that a product succeeds not because of its technology, but because of the user's experience of the technology. And I've seen many examples where the, in, the the technology wasn't where it needed to be, but through design, the customer had a great experience. So that's what led me to believe that wholeheartedly. And so that has a lot of implications. It, 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 not, it means it matters who's designing a product. It matters... Whether the designer has the ability to stamp his or her stamp of approval um, on the on a product before it ships, it's the power dynamic within a team and how in the types of product managers you hire and the types of processes you have for conceiving and iterating products and where you in, where you empower designers and at what a, a phase of the process. And um, you know, and all those factors together, you know, ultimately determine whether a company is design driven. And, um, and is, and is really thinking about competing at the interface level. And, and, and another sort of part of the interface layer theory is that everything is being disintermediated underneath and that it's almost like a game of, of slap a hand where the better interface ultimately eats whatever it, it is representing underneath. I mean, if you think about Alexa as an interface, if you could say, Alexa, I need a ride and then Alexa determines whether it's Uber or Lyft based on proximity price or whatever those companies are paying Amazon, suddenly you see that the interface has displaced Mm -hmm. in in the entire world of technology or or decision-making and platform power underneath. And it's just because it's a more friendly interface for you to request a ride when you need it. And I think that goes for many examples of visual interfaces, audio, you know, new uh, voice interfaces. And it's but it's at the end of the day, designers have so much control over what those experiences are and what the defaults are and what you're what you what you see first. And so that's why I'm so fascinated by companies that are building modern new interfaces and the role of designers in, in leading those companies.
1: Yeah. And so and how are you seeing that evolve? Right. So so. The, the question I have is, is it widely understood at this point, or do you feel like it's quite commonplace now that the ingredients or the recipe for success has shifted from where it was five years ago, that there is a well-understood respect for that role and a prioritization of it? I mean, you could take venture as, a, as an example. Early-stage teams, are you seeing the composition of that early-stage team reflective of what we're talking about? Or or do you still think it has some catching up to do to kind of get to where it needs to be for what seems to be true about that interface layer and and what that might mean for a successful outcome?
2: Well, like you guys, I see teams that are across the spectrum all the time. I see some teams that are founded by a designer and have a design ethos from the beginning, and they do prototypes before they even write business plans. And it's all about Really thinking through the, the, the interface and testing it and, and making it a part of their value proposition as a company. And I've seen teams that outsource design and are so focused on underlying market mechanics and they're just totally missing the boat. And then of course a lot in between. So, you know, as a, as an investor, I'm always testing for attention to. Design and how the structure of the business is, who the people are, how they're empowered or not empowered and, and what their process of building products is like. But, but, um, I think, I think the world's still in transition and I think we all know to say that design is important, but not a lot of companies know what that even means. Also, if you look at a company, if it doesn't have a design system where all of the participants in design and even beyond design are able to collaborate and see prototypes and comment and share uh, access to UI components to ensure consistency across product experiences and style guides. And there's a lot of mechanics as well that determine whether a company is really walking the talk.
0: How do you you design for that receptivity? Because basically there are companies that do that well. We see it when we work with teams. And we like to say we work with teams that get it. But product teams speaking to design teams – Works, but how? How do what? Are, what needs to be true for business unit leaders and product teams and design teams to work more effectively together?
2: Well, they, I think that the I would say like everyone has to value the role of the designer, but actually, it's a, it's also a top down thing. It's what is what? How are people being structured and managed? Who's in charge? I always I always have my teams do concepting with product and design in the room, but not engineering because I'm trying to solve problems with bias towards the interface and the user's experience Mm. of the product. And so I purposely have a period of time where design and product iteration, and then I shift the power to engineering and I say, okay, they have to accept what we're building in order for it to go into production. And so now there's a Period where there's debate around the efficiency of the experience and the the cost of from a database call perspective and all of the other implications before a product goes into production, but I'm designing the experience of building a product in such a way where the power is shifting in that order. So I, you know that's one way you can instrument for that and test for it.
1: And do you see a contrast in the early stage? space versus companies at scale uh, at the Fortune 500 level. So you're obviously inside of a large organization, but obviously within the design sphere, so it may look different. But in in your experience with large organizations, do you find that the prioritization of product and design is similar, different, has caught up?
2: Well, I think that it's 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 starting to. One of the things I'm focused on with my teams, uh, one of my teams is building a product called Adobe XD, and we're trying to view it more as a platform for design in an organization as opposed to a product. And so we're thinking about how how what does every stakeholder or design need to be able to do to work in that way. So I think tools like that are helping. Obviously, other tools like Envision and others that are about sharing prototypes are helping. And also just the the notion of transparency in an organization. I feel when people start to see where a product is as opposed to hear about it, they have a greater sense of alignment. Hmm. And one of my macro beliefs in big companies is that they struggle when there is misalignment around the organization. And in order to solve it, they throw process at it. And that's where we end up being overcome with bureaucracy and meetings and check-ins and checkpoints and gates and like and it's because there was misalignment and some great manager somewhere said, Oh, great. Let's just instill a process in order to make sure we stay aligned. And that just weighs an organization down. It creates all this organizational debt. And so I'm, I'm more of a fan of not always solving misalignments with process, but also solving misalignments with prototypes and with visualizations of why we're doing something and how it's going to work. And that notion of a prototype being worth a thousand meetings could not be more true. Hmm. So that's one of the ways I'm always pushing in an organization and leveraging design to just move mountains.
1: And last question on the interface layer, we talked about sort of the commoditization or the simplification of the tech stack. Like when you're working with design teams or design founders who may be outsourcing that function to kind of really prioritize the interface layer or design the interface layer, what is your recommendation of the, the point at which that becomes more core competency or internal or in sourced is it, is it kind of case-by-case case depending on the product and, and the business model, or, or do you have a kind of a philosophy around like how and when you integrate that function in a more kind of internalized way?
2: Well, I always like to say you can't outsource your competitive advantage. And so teams have to decide, like, what are we going to be known for? Is it the speed of our product? Is it the interface? Is it the um, is it costs? Is it like what are the what what are the things that we want to over-index on? And then those are the people that not only have to have the best people for, but also you have to structure the organization so that they're central. And you have to also be honest. Like not every you can't be you can't prioritize everything. You can't be about everything. Mm-hmm. You have to make choices and at least have a stack rank. And and that's you know what I try to do with teams is I try to figure out okay what is what is the stack rank of the assets, the features, that, that or the, 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 the capabilities? What is the stack rank of the capabilities that this company has to prioritize in order to be really good at what they're delivering? And so for some, design is not that important. And, and that happens sometimes. That's okay. Just let's be honest about it.
0: It's interesting to us, Scott, that first of all, you're at business school, right? You're, you're designing and launching yep. a venture. And at the same time you're launching that venture, you're learning business, right? And so, and, and having shared that experience, right? That's hard to do, right? For anyone. And so I think what we're yep. interested in is because, because this is about behavior and business, you're thinking about users and you're thinking about product. At the same time, you're learning, you're doing the RC, yeah. you're doing the RC I curriculum. And so where was there helpful crossover? Where, do, yeah. how did you learn not, what not to do? We always talk yeah. about constraints as being helpful, right? I, I know at business school learning about the constraints of a financial model or accounting regulations, these are all things that are, seem seem constrictive, but actually they can be generative when you're thinking about design. So how did you navigate that experience and where, where was it good and where was it not so good?
2: Well, listen, I mean, I think that for me, business school is really just about trying to figure out how to do more with less time and how to start to abstract the things I need to know in order to make decisions, whether it was in a case study in class or whether it was with my business. And I I was probably a shitty business school student because I just was so focused on my business and, and was always thinking, should I just drop out? And maybe in the PR value of dropping out of HBS may have been better than finishing it, but (laughs) here we are. But um, I, I uh, think also everything in my, uh, my life has sort of always been very meta. I feel like, the, the book I wrote during business school when I was starting Hands was called Making Ideas Happen. And it was literally written while I was trying to make the hands happen. The Behance was a crazy idea. And I was actually going around and trying to learn from the most productive creative teams how they worked for a few reasons. One is because I felt like those are the types of customers we wanted to appeal to. And so there was a business case for why this book was helping build our brand. But also, I wanted to learn how how are these people making their bold ideas happen So I can do that. And the book was a great forcing function for me to take this effort seriously. So, I mean, the messy middle was written at a time where I felt like I was in the messy middle of writing the messy middle. I was in the messy middle of my career to some extent after an acquisition, not sure what I want to do next, tried to be an investor, didn't like that. Didn't, you know, it was just sort of like in for the first time really ever for me, I was not. Exactly sure what where where I was going to end up and what I was intended to do. The answer is always an obvious thing for me. I was hey I'll just do this rest of my life. I love it, and I hadn't found that yet. Mm. And also I was advising tons of entrepreneurs in the messy middle. They were all talking about the same things. They were either in a low point or a high point. It was always volatile, and there was always something to be figured out in either place that they were. So. I don't know. It was, it was just again like a very meta experience, and I, I tend to like that. I tend to like that feeling of feeling fully utilized. I feel like happiness at the end of the day is when you feel like every muscle being stretched, and that's what I feel now with the product and the investing and the writing. It's, but you've got to find your zone for that. I think.
0: Mm. How do you do that? How do you do that well? Right, because you talk about being present, doing all those things at one time. Well. What, what, what are there any tricks of the trade or advice that you got along the way that helped with that?
2: Well, I think, I think I, I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out why I feel super engaged or why I don't. And I try to dissect that and understand because it actually helps me make better decisions. There are companies I've invested in where I did because on paper, this was like a great idea and on paper, it looked like the right entrepreneur, but I wasn't, just feeling engaged to a sufficient level. And I, those are tend to typically the investments I regret. So I'm trying to fine tune what that means for me. And because it's, and, but it's, I think part of it's intersection, part of it is being willing to kind of revert back to the previous version of you. I, I, we always talk about AB testing when it comes to products. We don't talk about AB testing when it comes to how you work and, and even how you manage yourself and your career. You should always be A-B testing something about yourself. Yeah. The way you track meetings, the way you run meetings, if you have meetings, the types of tools you use for email, the types of tools you use for other things, and then you either adopt the change or revert back to the previous version. And to me, that's a form of iteration of how I work that's worked for me. And I think the best companies do that too. But it's funny because we don't, it, it sort of goes against common sense. It, it, the idea of don't fix it if it ain't broke. Is exactly the opposite of what you should be doing. If something is working for you and is part of your competitive advantage, then try another tool and see if it gets you even better. If I'm a great person over email, for example, then try to find this app and then that app, and now I'm on Superhuman because I keep changing new ones, and that's to me the absolute best-in-class email management experience. So, as an example,
1: so for a lot of our work, the inspiration to build compelling products and and design comes from people. And we spend a lot of time studying behaviors, uh, motivations, pain points to really surface what that could be that translated becomes great product. So just thinking about your experience first at Behance and now at Adobe, right? In both cases, the designer is, is kind of the end user. Can you share with us about whether it was the impetus for what you ultimately created or how you kind of continue to listen to the different things that might inspire uh, different directions or new products. How do you witness that behavior? How do you study that behavior? How do you kind of introduce that, those learnings or those behaviors into the workflow that you have as far as, as design is concerned?
2: Well, I think, I mean, I, to me, the competitive advantage and creativity is organization. And the best designers I've ever worked with, are actually among the most organized designers I've ever worked with Mm. the way they manage their components, their style sheets their But it's funny because you don't learn that in design school. And also it's not intuitive. You'd think that the best designers are the most creative and all out there and no organization, no limits, no constraints. And of course design is all about problem solving and problem solving is all about constraints and resourcefulness and, and organization. So, That's for me, I feel like I'm always trying to figure out the object model of everything, the object model of a product, the object model of a design system or a process or even a meeting. What's a taxonomy? What are we talking about? What are we going to go from what to what to what? And like, what's the end game? And is there a straw man? Is there a way we can even skip a step? I mean, those are that's just the way that I think. And those are the designers I work with that I love working with the most think that way as well. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of how I think about it.
1: Yeah, just to follow on that, I guess maybe in a a different way, if you're thinking about the future of your roadmap at Adobe, let's say, what are the ways you surface the themes that you might prioritize looking out, call it two to five years? When you think about where design is going, where do you get that inspiration? How do you you pull those threads out to say this becomes the focus for what we should be building versus others that might kind of compete with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, the easy answer in the truth is just customers. I try to spend a ton of time with customers, like seeing what they're hacking to solve problems that we're not even focused on yet. Understanding new mediums, for example, augmented reality. That is a new medium that is going to be just like mobile and just like web and just like print in the sense that the designers from the past are going to have to migrate to the future. And that's by the way, Adobe's playbook. Adobe makes products that help bridge people from medium to medium and it's ours to, it's our responsibility to figure it out. I believe that every designer is going to have to be building 3D interfaces before they even know it. Mm. How do you get a designer to get ready to create a 3D to embrace that? What are the traditional tools they would use? How do you meet them where they are as opposed to forcing them to learn entirely new tools? How do you help, allow them to leverage past assets as opposed to recreate things? Because that's just the way designers work. No one wants to start from a blank page. Everyone wants to start from something. Like, what is that something? So those are the, and what are the edges that will become the center? That's always one of the nuances of how a designer is getting feedback on his or her work. A lot of great designers I know these days, are using products like After Effects because they really want to control the animation because they feel like that's just as much a part of the UX as the UI is. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of designers on the, on the edge that are embracing mm-hmm. analytics. They want to know how their designs perform in real time. And then that makes you question, like, hmm, should analytics be part of a design tool? What does data-driven design really mean? And so those are like just some examples, but... Um, that, so that's the, that's the type of thing, things that I think about, but it's all geared around what customers are struggling with. Super
0: so, so so one question on that note, getting a little bit more specific. We, we talk at Runyon about design translation all the time, so does understanding human behavior and synthesizing an insight or a nugget a kernel that we can design around into better product, into better business models. Is there an interesting was there an interesting moment at Behance or as you're at Adobe now where you you noticed an interesting behavior that was illuminating that you'd never seen before and and how did you and if you did what was it and how did you better support it in the product that you were offering and again whether it was at Behance or at Adobe I just think it would be interesting to understand that connection between observation and synthesis into product
2: Well I mean I think one of the one of the things that I've Believed over the years and found, and then have really driven across all our products I've been involved with, especially consumer products, and even products like Pinterest or Periscope or others, is this notion of ego analytics and the belief that in our first initial engagement with a product, we have no faith in the value the product will ultimately bring us. We want an immediate return of some form of gratification, and the lowest Kind of low in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs in this instance would be feeling like good about myself and feeling like I'm, and my ego is being stroked in some way or I'm reaching people or I'm impacting people or people are watching my stuff or people are looking at it or people are liking it or it's the ego analytics that help me take a second look at the product and feel good about myself very quickly, enough to either engage and find more real value and deeper value than long lasting value. And so I'm therefore always thinking about, especially with consumer facing products, how are, how is the user's success being merchandised back to the user? How is it central mm-hmm. to the experience? Mm-hmm. What is the thing that they are racking up or getting in the early stage of using the product that, Feed their laziness, vanity, or selfishness in some way, shape, or form. And how does that become a part of the first mile framework for a product experience? I mean, the, there's so much to be done there and be thought about in any consumer facing product. And it's one of those areas I feel like teams don't think enough about, but uh, it's a behavior I really believe in. I think we have too much faith in our customers and I have to realize before the first few minutes in our product they're a completely different type of customer. And we typically, build, it's, it's the ultimate irony that teams spend the final mile of their experience building the product, building the first mile of the customer's experience using the product. When in fact, the first mile of the experience is all that matters mm. to every customer, <laughs> right? Because that's the one thing that every customer shares. And then only only smaller cohorts get through that first mile. How could you not spend a majority of your time nailing it um, that resonates a, a lot with,
1: with with what we think about and work on for sure yeah that's a that's a strong insight the messy middle the book you put out recently sounds like a lot of the inspiration to write that was from your own experience but maybe take us through the motivation to write it why, why do you think it's an under-discussed topic and any threads you wanted to pull out for us in terms of, of why you think it's an important book to yeah. read either as a designer Absolutely. Or, or operator
2: Well, I mean, the messy middle is about volatility, and it's inspired by my frustration with how much, how obsessed we are with the starts and finishes of everything, and how little is discussed about the volatility in between, specifically the lows, where you're working amidst complete anonymity, uncertainty, ambiguity, and you see no end in sight. And then the highs, where Something is working and it's either how you work or how your team is working or something about your product is working. How do you optimize the hell out of it? And and the, the insight to start with is that we're not our best selves at the lows or the highs. When we're at those lows, we make decisions out of fear and many examples there. And then when we're at our highs, we falsely attribute the things that we did to the things that work, mm. which also then impacts our decisions. And so in this extraordinarily volatile in between, I think there are specific insights around how to endure the lows, how to optimize the highs, and also how not how to not screw up the final mile of any project before you launch something, before you share something, before you go public, before you get acquired, or before you go bankrupt. A lot of weird stuff happens in that final mile that also warrants discussion. So that, that, is, that was my goal for the book was to, to capture that.
1: Sure. And it, th- there seems to be a, a prototypical founder for somebody who excels at, at the beginnings and early stages of a company. And then there's somebody who maybe who's more ideas driven or visionary. And then there's sort of a prototypical operator for somebody who's excelling at later stages, who's responsible for scaling a company, who's perhaps more analytic. And I know it's generalizing, but I- I'm curious with respect to the messy middle in, in your study of this and in your own experience is there a profile of operator that makes sense there is it just about kind of putting different kind of modes and mindsets on to to pay attention to some of the pitfalls and sort of opportunities that you're, you're highlighting or how would you characterize the right team or person or profile for, for someone in that stage
2: right well I think one of the competitive advantages of great companies is just sticking together long enough to figure it out. And I think that, and you're in terms of how to navigate that messy the middle. There's a whole, I mean, there's probably a hundred different uh, features of, of an entrepreneur that in a team that I would look for. But I mean, one of the rare ones is the ability to be a narrator of the journey for your team and to merchandise progress back to the team so that people feel progress. And then, therefore, make more progress, which actually tracks back to some of Teresa Maublais' research at Harvard Business School around the the relationship between progress and motivation. And then I think I, I think the the narration point you're you're basically driving your team on a journey with the windows blacked out and all of them on the back seat, not knowing where they are. And it's your job to narrate them and tell them that they're not still stuck in traffic on the FDR that they are passing state lines or they're passing milestones or they're making progress and, and a lot of a lot of leaders don't feel comfortable doing that because they feel like it's either redundant or fake or bs or whatever but teams need it because we become we lose our short-term reward system as soon as we sign up for something long-term and we need to supplement it with something else we, we can't fool ourselves into thinking that we don't need it because we're motivated by some long-term outcome it just isn't biologically natural for us. And, and I think that's one of the things that founders typically don't do as well as they need to, and or any leader of a product, a bold journey.
1: Sure. And, and in your experience, do you find that, because you spend so much time with designers, do you find that design operators and founders handle the messy middle any differently? Any patterns you've noticed there, or is it kind of largely consistent regardless of, of founder?
2: I think we're all in the messy middle and I think uh, we all deal with it when we're in it. And I think that designers have a superpower, which is they can help us visualize the narrative and visualize progress. And, and that's a very, very, very powerful tool. I mean, just like marketing the a hundred plus billion dollar annual production industry of what uh, compels us to take action and believe things. I and mean, why are we using the same tools like billboards and marketing and, um, and, and design-driven experiences to make our own teams believe in their own progress and feel motivated towards a particular outcome. I think that we should be.
1: That's terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. I know we're over time. We just have one final question we wanted to, to part with, which is, what's the best advice anyone's ever given you? Put That's you a little bit one. on the spot Let's here.
2: See. <laughs> I think. I think. It's tied between two mentors. One, John Maeda, who kind of once told me that some things in life are just about adding a brick. And mm. it's a longer story, so unfortunately I can't show the context <laughs> of that advice, but it was helpful for someone who's always wanting to start big things and do wild things. It was a helpful reminder that sometimes the the, the contributions you make to companies or to communities, you know, is more about longevity than it is about degree of impact. Mm. And then Seth Godin, who always tells me to keep making a ruckus, and that has always meant different things to me at different points in my career, but it's always meant something.
1: That's terrific. Scott, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate your insights. Best of, of luck course. with the with the messy middle and Adobe. Hopefully, catch you soon. Thank
2: you, guys. Take care, appreciate Scott. It. Thanks so much. Yeah, take care. Bye. Of course. bye Thanks for
1: listening.